Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Blanford. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. Vocations, and a lack thereof, have been a challenge for the church for a number of years now. On today's sampler, we'll take a look at the roots and the fruits of vocations. First up is the In the Company of Charity podcast by the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul. In this series, they discuss the Catholic Church, society, and service to others through the lens of the spirit received from St. Vincent de Paul, the Saint of Charity. Today's episode is learning about St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. That you have to have that peace with inside. It has to be interior. You have to have that connection to God inside and, and just be at peace with him. And I just think that that is what, besides her friendship, she should be known for because really up until her death, right at the moment of her death, she focused on only what God wanted for her. Well, Happy New Year and welcome to In the Company of Charity, a podcast of the Daughters of Charity. And I am here in celebrating this new year, um, our first episode of 2022 with my good friend and co-host, Sister Liz Schoberg. Hello, hello. Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good year. Do you think so? I don't want to, I mean, knock on wood, God's grace, come Holy Spirit, yeah. we are moving in a good direction. No matter what the cost, we are here and God is with us. So Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think this being our first episode of the new year and the particular topic of your interview um, with Lisa from the Shrine uh, is really interesting because we're talking about the Shrine in Emmitsburg, Maryland of Elizabeth Ann Seton the first American-born saint. And fun fact, we're fun both fact. <laughs> Elizabeth Anns. I, you know, yeah, Elizabeth Ann, Elizabeth Ann in a community with an American foundress named Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ann. Ann. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It, so I think I that she will definitely give blessings. I have not done this before. <laughs> How have we not had this episode before? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think she's probably just been waiting patiently for us <laughs> to remember um, how important she is to our community and to uh, to us. Um, I wasn't necessarily named after Elizabeth Ann Seton, but when I was in, in the seminary uh, in Emmitsburg mm. on her birthday, all the Elizabeth Anns had to go up and you got a pin that said I'm an Elizabeth Ann a ribbon I, ri- yeah, yeah. I had the same experience <laughs> yeah and you felt a little <laughs> foolish but you know then there were like a ton of Elizabeth Ann's there and I thought mm-hmm. wow I don't appreciate this woman as much as other people do and I think for me that was a revelation that you know very scripturally speaking right the prophet is never appreciated in his own town you know in this case the prophetess, you know, the prophet Elizabeth Ann is not appreciated uh, by sometimes by some of us uh, in our own community. And so really, really that prompted me to get to know her a little bit more. Um, And uh, this interview was so wonderful. Uh, I I just think um, Lisa is so great as a storyteller and um, just as an advocate for the shrine and 
for the prayers and the um, just the work of the shrine is amazing, amazing to me. Yes, and thousands and thousands of people make a pilgrimage to Emmitsburg, Maryland to mm -hmm. go to the shrine and and walk the sacred grounds. And um, here's here's a saint who is, was truly American. You know, she. She was a pioneer in a lot of ways and going, going out into to the rough country of Maryland, um, still in some ways very, uh, you know, rustic out there in, mm -hmm. in Western Maryland. So um, definitely we don't want to spoil any stories in, in the actual interview, but she really is uh, a saint for all people. Yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. She um, when you hear her story told by Lisa, it's just amazing, amazing. When you think about what she accomplished, what she lived through. Um, yeah. And, and um, just the way that she helped the community develop uh, in a time that was so difficult. Um, so she really is a, a, a woman for all seasons, for sure. And, and may we have the same kind of trust in, in divine providence and willingness to step out in faith that, that Mother Seton did. Um, she really is, is uh, someone to be admired and imitated. Absolutely, um, yeah. So we, we really hope you enjoy this, this episode and, you know, the patron here, the patron of our podcast, the patron <laughs> of, of the two Elizabeth's Anns that you're listening to right now. Um, we're... We love this this saint, and, and I'm sure you will too after hearing all these awesome stories. Absolutely. Enjoy, everyone. Welcome, everybody. This is Sister Liz, and we're, we're here with Lisa Donahue, who is from the Shrine of Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, a place very close to my heart. And so um, I just want to give her the opportunity to, to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about, yeah, what you're doing at the shrine. And then we're going to get into our topic um, about Mother Seton, who is one of my favorite saints on the world, in the world, on the planet, you know, like very near and dear to my heart. So thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. This is, um, it's good for me to be able to talk about Elizabeth Ann Seton. I love her as you do, um, and have gotten to know her more through working at the shrine. Um, I think she's interesting because she's not that Joan of Arc kind of figure, you know, she's, um, people look at her and think, well, what did she do? And, and the more I research her, the more extraordinary I think she is. And so I like being able to share that. And that's part of what I get to do with the shrine. Um, recently in the past year, um, I've been able to do a lot of research on her and it's opened up like so many doors, like through our exhibits, but also um, through like her letters and our programs and living history and just really getting the story right and really being able to delve into that story, which we had never done before. And I, and I have to say, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the will of God, divine providence and all that. Um, but before that, I just want to say thank you so much for your, your uh, presentation that I know um, we had some articles that came from the Sisters of Charity of New York down to the shrine. And um, yeah, thank you for, for sharing all of that. Maybe just touch on um, those, those items that we have um, in, 
in the shrine right now as an exhibit? Yeah, so we were um, contacted by the Sisters of Charity of New York last year, and they had some items of Elizabeth's that they were willing to send to the shrine. And these are pretty impressive and, you know, in my thoughts, because one of them is her bonnet and her shawl, which we had none of her clothing um, prior to that. So um, it's also some of her son William's possessions and his children. And so Elizabeth of her five children, William was the only one to have children. He had eight children that lived to adulthood, but only a couple of them had children. And only one of them had children, Isabella of her own that lived um, really past the age of 30. And unfortunately, none of them had children. (laughs) So it really stops. Elizabeth's line stops with her great grandson, Ferdinand. And a lot of these items were in his possession. And when he passed away, he gave them to the sisters in New York. And then they just recently sent them to us. So the way I like to do a tour is um, through storytelling. So I attach a story to all of the items to really show um, how the family uh, progressed with their faith and how Elizabeth was so instrumental in that and really who she was. And so um, as you found out, (laughs) I like to talk a lot and I like to tell stories to really come together to who Elizabeth is. And that's really what I have found out. No matter who I have picked, um, if I pick her daughter, Anna Maria, for example, which we'll get into, the story comes back to Elizabeth because she was so instrumental in their lives, or she learned something through their life. And it really helped her get to where she wanted to be by the time she died. You know, I, I'm, her story itself is just fascinating. I mean, everything from her growing up and um, the situation with, with her family of origin and, um, getting married and having these kids and, you know, the issue with, with William's uh, sickness and eventual death. I mean, these are, it's, um, it's a fascinating story, but it's a story of, of tremendous um, suffering and tragedy in a lot of ways, you know, that she faced throughout her life. And I know like we can all kind of go back and look at like her biography and those details, but I think one of the things that's really um, interesting is the spirituality and the spiritual growth along the way. And so, you know, I think it's good if you want to speak to a little bit, okay, where was she? How did she grow? What, what were those things that kept her focused? Because, you know, you can be consumed by suffering and let it be an opportunity for despair versus any kind of growth or trust in God or realizing the presence of God in these these situations. Yeah, I think that that's um, one of the great things about Elizabeth, because she did suffer through those things that you're talking about, the loss of her mother when she was three. Within a year, between three and four, she loses her mother, her baby sister, her grandfather, who she was very close to. And already at that young age, she's thinking about God. She's thinking about heaven. She she takes the um, her father not being around very much because he was a doctor and he was studying and and very busy, um, very much to heart, you know, and we see that that's why I think she's so relevant today. We see that with so many children that don't have parents in their homes um, and they feel that loss so deeply. And she felt that, I mean, she, she felt that. And when she was, when she was older and married and seeing 
People around her pass away. She loses both her father and her father-in-law within two years of each other than her husband. Um, and then she loses her daughters as well. And in the time that she was in Emmitsburg, in those 11 years, there's 19 deaths that happen there between the sisters and her daughters and sister-in-law. So um, she takes it very seriously. And I think that that, to your point, is what's interesting about her. She could have um, become very sad, very depressed about that. And, and she does, she does on some occasions, but then she searches well, how can I figure out what God is doing here? How can I figure out what he wants from me here? And I think that that is right there what makes her a saint because she she doesn't settle in there. She doesn't be, stay in her sadness or her depression or her anger or whatever. She tries to work through that. And by working through that, she becomes closer to God. And, you know, someone said to me, a priest friend of mine said to me when I was taking him through the exhibit that, she is also like a patron saint for a happy death, just like St. Joseph, who she followed and looked up to because her goal was to try to figure out how to get people as close to God as they possibly could and get to that happy death. And we see that for not only herself, but her children, her friends, her family. I mean, it's extraordinary, really, how she was really working on that. Um, and that's what's so exciting to me is just the more I uncover the more I see that this was what she was working on in her mind. And, you know, the will of God that I kind of came about was through her daughter, Anna Maria's death. And so in the fall of 1811, when Anna Maria is dying, Elizabeth isn't taking it very well. I mean, this was her oldest child. It was a child that she was very close to when Anna Maria is three years old. She writes her this beautiful letter of, you know, you're my future friend, my future confidant. And she looked forward to this life that they were going to share together. Um, Anna Maria is with her in the Lazaretto when her husband's dying. And in those six weeks that he's in the Lazaretto, um, really, it's a miracle that kind of happens there because the first day she's sad and she's crying because of them laying on this brick floor and he's so sick. And then they kind of transform it to where they're studying scripture and they're praying together. And she really realizes by the time of his death that she never would have gotten him to that place had they been in New York. She never would have had that time alone with him to help him get to that happy death, that peace, um, if she had been with family and friends. And so she thanks God for that time. And I think that that's where you really see her Looking at peace um, as not happiness, but looking at peace as resigning to the will of God and trusting him that there is a reason why this is happening. And I, I, I mean, to me, that's beautiful and extraordinary, you know, for her to get to that point. You know, it, it's, it's a very different scenario than, than what, what I would call the prosperity gospel of, you know, so many spiritualities, it's like, well, if, if I'm good with God, then things should go well for me. Mm -hmm. You know, like if, if I'm praying, if I'm doing good works, if, you know, if things are, are cool on my, my spiritual level, like things, things should be okay. And there shouldn't be any kind of um, struggle or adversity. And if, if there is, it means that, you know, there's something not right. Um, right. And I think, 
you know, maybe, maybe you can touch a little bit on like, okay, as, as Catholics, we have a different view of, of our faith and, and how do we respond when those, those struggles come our way? Because, you know, if there's no meaning, then yeah, let's, let's get rid of all the suffering. Let's find a way to medicate or let's find a a way to escape, so to speak. Um, yeah, I mean, she, well, I mean, I think as Catholics, we do try to look at any cross we have to bear or suffering as there's a purpose. There's a, a reason that we're going through this. And, and I think that that's where the peace is. Like there's peace in trusting that there is a reason for this, you know, and, and I think that that's what she comes to find out. And I think that that's what's so wonderful about her letters. And so, you know, with Anna Maria, in that fall, she's very upset. She's honest about it. She doesn't feel like being charitable and, and she's struggling where Anna Maria, her daughter, who she has taught the faith is, is the opposite. She's looking at her death as, you know, she says to her mother, you know, mama, isn't this where you want me to be? Isn't this where you want me to be looking for eternity? And she uses her death to teach others about dying. And for Anna Maria, that was a very painful death. I mean, Mother Seton writes that her bones were thin and fracturing and coming through her skin, and she was almost blind. But, you know, Mother Seton gets it together. She gets the rules ratified. Um, she gets um, Archbishop Carroll to ratify the rules so that Anna Maria can become a sister before she dies in March. And then that following October in 1812, she kind of um, kind of goes through that depression again, where she's out at Anna Maria's grave and she's frustrated because she wants answers. She wants to know, has Anna Maria made it to eternity? And this is where she starts working with Father Brute. And what's interesting is those few months that they work together, it kind of turns to where she settles into, okay, I'm going to follow God's will as best I can. And now she's teaching Father Brute, like how to, how to do that. And she's telling him, don't rely on my word. You have to rely on God's word. But, which I think is so wonderful. But then when I was looking at her devotion to St. Teresa of Avila, then I realized she's trying to do this through finding that interior peace, which she writes about, she talks about it. And as early as 1804, she's starting to write about this. And so um, in 1815, when Rebecca, her other daughter is really sick and her son has just left for Italy and she's going through this dark period, she says to Father Brute, do not be sad for me that this sadness is a point of grace. And I think we, so in those few years, we see that transition of, she realizes I'm going to have hard times. I'm going to have dark times, but there's peace in relying on God to know that this is what he wants for me for whatever reason. This is the will that he had for Anna Maria. This is the will that he has for Rebecca. And I need to trust that. Mm. And, and I know you mentioned at one point um, before about how she communicated that to her sons, you know, of um, I want you, I, I forget the phrase you used. It was like, I'd rather you, you be in, in heaven, you know, I'd rather you have the faith. Yeah. So, you know, she was nervous about having William go in the Navy. Um, and most people assume it's because she was afraid that he would die, but she even says to him at one point, I really don't care if you die, not meeting you as heaven is in heaven is something that I could not stand. 
And so I think, yeah, with her sons, she worried very much, um, as we all do with our children, that they are somehow going to fail, that they are somehow not going to get to heaven. Um, and that is what she worried about. She worried about that for her children very much. Um, and, you know, she dies really not knowing the outcome of that. You know, William is still in the Navy. Catherine is not married. Um, she's very unsettled. And Richard, her son, um, her wayward son, we like to say, <laughs> was, was very much not settled. And so um, she has to, at those last moments, just give it all to God. And we see that when Richard comes to see her in December, and he only stays for a few hours, which the sisters were very upset about. Cecilia Conway, Sister Cecilia Conway was very upset about it. But Mother Seton knew that this is all that Richard could give at that time. And she gave him to God and just you know, this is all I can, I can do at this point. And I think that that is a lot easier said than done. I think it's a very difficult thing to do. I think it's very difficult today to do that. I actually had an interesting conversation with a visitor once about that, how we're losing those opportunities. Um, and this is a tangent, but we're losing those opportunities to trust God because now we can do it ourselves. Meaning, for example, like with our children, you know, when I was growing up, if I went out, my mom just had to trust that I would be home. There was no way to get in touch with me. And now, you know, she had to rely that God would get me home safely. And now with our phones, my kids are five minutes late. I'm texting them, you know, and I'm, I'm on them. Like, where are you? You know, text me when you get there, text me when you leave, all of that kind of stuff. And so now we're losing those opportunities to trust God, you know, because we can, we can do it on our own. And I think she is a beautiful example of just letting it all go and put it in God's hands. And I mean, for me, well, the more I get into her readings and, and realizing that she really did speak to what um, St. Teresa spoke of also is that you have to have that peace with inside. It has to be interior. You have to have that connection to God inside and, and just be at peace with him. And I just think that that is what, besides her friendship, she should be known for because really up until her death, right at the moment of her death, she focused on only what God wanted for her, you know? And I think I was telling you the story, which I, I find very interesting that, you know, a couple months before she died, she ends her friendship with father Brute and people are always shocked by that because they had been so close for 10 years, but she writes that to another priest friend that it was a mutual decision that when she's listening to him, she's not listening to God. And that's a subtraction that she cannot afford. And I think that that's so interesting because I know for myself, I would not have the strength to do that. I would not have the strength to end those relationships because I want to spend my last few minutes on earth, totally focused on God. And she did. And I think that that is just extraordinary. I mean, she, she says that, you know, he is saying things to her. The sisters are saying things to her, like she's going to bypass heaven and go straight to purgatory that, you know, she's going to be in heaven soon, which are very typical things I think for people to say when they're next to someone who's dying. Um, but she didn't want to hear it and she completely blocked it out, 
you know, and the night that she's dying, she dies somewhere between one and two in the morning. I mean, she's just praying constantly and she has her eyes transfixed on the crucifix. I mean, she just wanted to be so close to God, as close as she could get. Um, when most people, I think, want to spend those last few minutes of their life with the people around them, you know, mm. and not that that's wrong. I just think that it goes to showing her desire to be with God. Absolutely. And I want to, um, you know, switch gears a little bit because she has that personal spirituality and that, and that, that relationship with God th- thick and thin, right? Um how, how does that translate into what the sisters are doing with the young people, you know, trying to raise up good, you know, Christians in education, you know, teaching children the, the basics of the faith and um, the foundations of, of reading and writing and, and stuff like that. So um, can you speak a little bit about, you know, the kids that were around and then maybe um, into sort of what, what you're doing to tell that part of the story? So, um, yeah, I mean, another part of what I've come to realize with the Sisters and Daughters of Charity is just the ripple effects of what has happened in the past couple hundred years and what what the lives, I can't even, the millions of lives that have been changed through just teaching those basic things, through your, you know, the education and, and the charitable works of taking care of people in need. And so we wanted to delve into that a little bit more. We wanted to start not only a living history program to tell those stories of the sisters, but also to tell the stories of the students that are there. And so we started this junior history interpreter program. And we have girls that are nine to 16 years old. Um, we have 28 girls now. And we teach them how to be interpreters, how to tell the stories of what was happening at the academy in 1818. Um, Through those those lessons, um, for example, the first lesson is calligraphy, but not only how to write calligraphy, but why was teaching reading and writing so important then? Um, When Mother Seton comes to Emmitsburg, it's between seven and 800 people living here. A lot of them had not been to school, only 12% of the country was being educated at that time. And they didn't know how to read and write. So what did that look like? So when you don't know how to read and write in 1818, and transportation is extremely limited, and you're in a very poor area. um, When people moved, which could be your children, your parents, your siblings, you never heard from them again. And the other thing is most of those girls had not left Emmitsburg. There was no transportation. And so they didn't even know of a world that had existed outside of Emmitsburg. And so Mother Seton really wanted to change that. So she started her school almost immediately for girls that lived here in this area. But then she also accepted um, boarders. And so those were girls from some of the wealthiest families in the country. Those were Charles Carroll's um, granddaughters. Those were Judge Gaston, um, who was a senator from New York. I mean, I'm sorry, North Carolina's granddaughters. And so you have these different levels of social status. You have these different levels of education. But the the basic thing that she's teaching them, um, besides the schooling, is those charitable works. And so these girls start going up into the mountains. They're helping to feed people. They're helping to clothe people. And so she's making that part of her school. But just the life that she gave the students that lived here, um, especially 
the ones that might not have even heard music before, a good piece of music, or had been able to see beautiful artwork. And these are things that she brought to their lives and also teaching them the faith. And she was right. If she taught these girls the faith, then they would pass it on to their children. And you see that through the relationships that she had with these girls. Um, and what's nice about our program is that the second half of the program, I assigned them a student that actually lived here. And so then we, we together um, do the research um, and we bring that person to life and we help them tell visitors, excuse me, the story of why they were here, what they meant. And in a very clever way, also what would become of them, you know, um, for example, Esther Kearney lived here in Emmitsburg. She was the last living person to have known Mother Seton. She dies when she's, I think, 102. She was interviewed in 1910 by the Vatican. So the young girl that plays her, she'll say things like, um, I hope someday to tell the whole world about Mother Seton, because she does. And But she also, we have that story of the first time she met Mother Seton, sitting on her lap as a six-year-old and her beautiful dark eyes. And so it's really important to us. Um, but I also tell each of these girls that Mother Seton chose them, that they were brought to this program because Mother Seton chose them for this program. And I believe that. I think that saints attach themselves to us as well and lead us in a way. Um, and I think Mother Seton is attached to these girls. I think she's helping them. Um, the changes that we see in them through this program, the understanding that they start to have of why the school is important, my mother Seton was important, and the things that she did to help these girls change their lives. Um, you can see it through the JHIs. Um, and they're a lot of fun as well. <laughs> you know, they're a lot of fun to have around. Um, but I, I think it's important because of the work that has been done in the last 200 years by the sisters and daughters. We see it not only through the education, but even the nursing, the civil war. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. Um, and so we wanna be part of keeping that story alive. Can you mention, cause I know we'll have to wrap up here in a few minutes, but can you mention some of the things that the shrine has done um, to kind of bring those things to life? I know you, you have the, the young people doing um, history when they come through on the tours and, and uh, in period costumes and all that stuff. Um, I know that there's a lot of other additional things that the shrine does to kind of help people connect with whether that's the civil war or the story of, of mother Seton or, or Catherine um, these are, these are really cool things. I want to make, make sure we, we touch on those as well. Yeah. I mean, the shrine right now is doing a lot of things, which is great. So we have our junior history interpreters. We also have uh, living history interpreters who are portraying sisters that were here during that time, which is great because they have a whole nother layer of a story to tell. We have our civil war tours, um, which really tell the story of how nursing became so important. It started uh, with Mother Seton. It was formerly started in 1823 um, and became so important during the Civil War. Um, we have letters of families, of children of soldiers that were so appreciative of what the sisters did for their fathers. And I think that's important to tell as well. But we also have like our special events, like Back from the Dead, which is a tour that um, you do in the evening and you go through the cemetery and you encounter different saints and um, the devil always makes an appearance. So that's fun. 
Um, but to tell those stories as well. And we see visitors, there was a visitor a few years ago that just stood in front of the, the people in purgatory um, because we had them portray that they had died in a car accident and her daughter had just died in a car accident a few weeks before. And she just stood there for the longest time. Or we have kids say things to us like, well, I'm always told that I have a guardian angel. I didn't know that I had a devil that followed me as well, you know, and just getting those points across through this reenactment of the saints, which is, it's really cool. And then we have candlelit tours with our junior history interpreters to show and tell those stories of Christmas time, which is also important. I mean, mother Seton made designed the altar in her um, at the Academy at the white house, because she wanted the students to remember the gift that um, God had given us through the birth of Jesus, you know, our salvation. And and she would always say, give a gift to the infant Jesus um, and do a work of kindness. And so I think those stories are also important. And then we do something called Door to Bethlehem, which is a take off the Las Posada. Uh, you go and visit eight doors outside and you get turned away by people facing today's issues. Um, and then um, you make it to the ninth door, which is the Basilica. So it's a, just a beautiful story at Christmas time. Um, we do things like Seeds of Hope, which is a group that is, um, they do outreach to people that might not be able to come or afford to come to the shrine and to hear Mother Seton's story. And so they're able to come and spend the day um, and have a really good meal and share that time together. Um, and that has really grown. So that's beautiful. So we've done a lot of great things in the past year. We started a prayer line as well. Um, and hopefully it'll keep going because like I said, the more I open up Mother Seton's story, the more I realize how relevant she is today, you know, and how the things that she faced really haven't changed. You know, she experienced those hardships, like you said, and really every role that a woman can hold. I mean, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. really, I mean, she was a sister, but also a wife and, you know, she <clears throat> was a mother and, um, a business owner, and she really reached out to people. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, Sister Mary Claire Hughes just recently said, you know, that she was a friend. She's like, she's my friend. And this is a sister that's, you know, 90, I think she's 97, 98 right now. Um, and that's what we keep seeing over and over again, is that people look to Mother Seton as a friend. Like she understands what you're dealing with because she's been through it all. <laughs> For, for anyone who's, who's listening, who is near uh, Emmitsburg or within driving distance, like what, what can you say about uh, grounds and the sacredness and um, what would you, what would you say to convince them that they need to come and visit the Shrine of Elizabeth Ann Seton? Well, first off, it's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> I mean, the grounds are beautiful, very peaceful. I mean, they've been able to really maintain that, I think, through the grounds, through the trees, the witness trees, um, and the two historic homes. And I think as you move through them, as you, if you go through them on tour, um, it really is about storytelling. It's not just seeing that this belonged to Mother Seton and this belonged to Mother Seton, but what did that mean? Um, you know, and what was that like? And why was that important? And as we go through each room, we, we talk about that, we talk about 
her story, the sisters, the students. Um, and you really get that part, I think, of American history that you don't usually get. These were everyday people. Um, and they were dealing with hardships and hard times. And you're able to hear those stories of how they got through them. Um, and then the church itself, I mean, the basilica itself is just stunning. It's just such a peaceful place. Emmersburg is an extremely small town. And yet there's this beautiful shrine and history that has happened there. And I think even, even for people that are not Catholic, I think it's just such a nice historic place, such a beautiful story of human beings that lived in the early 1800s and how they did that and how they were able to come through that together, you know? So yeah, yeah I think everyone should come and <laughs> spend time there. And if you can't come, where can they, where can they find uh, information about the shrine or some of that media stuff that folks can access about Elizabeth Ann Seaton's story? Yeah. And what has happened, a blessing of COVID, if I could say, is that in the past year, we've started doing virtual tours, um, which we had wanted to do, but had never really started doing. And COVID kind of forced us to do it. And now we do virtual tours, um, which you can find on our website, the National Shrine of Elizabeth Ann Seaton, and um, sign up for a virtual tour. And we have school groups now that are signing up from Alaska, California, Canada, even we had some people from South America. These are people that would never have been able to come to the shrine, and yet they're able to get this tour and hear her story um, and see the things that we have there and make those connections. Awesome. Lisa, thank you so much. And I, I hope we can have you on again to talk more about <laughs> Mother Seton because this has been such a gift. Oh, good. Thank you. I, yeah, obviously I like to talk about her. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, God bless you. Thank you. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler on Catholic Radio Indy. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. An interview with Father Trenton Rauch and his story on how Catholic Radio influenced his vocation. I was not struck uh, by lightning and knocked off my horse. I had a lot of time driving in the car listening to the radio, and I just got to a point where I would prefer to listen to something that would be in intellectually stimulating. And um, at the same time, I was learning about the faith, particularly the apologetics. Catholic Radio, building faith, building vocations. An example of the truest answer to God's call to vocation comes from the life of St. Joseph. Our next offering on the sampler comes from The Art of Catholic with Matthew Leonard. In this episode, Matthew is joined by Dr. Brant Petrie to discuss why, contrary to popular opinion, we can pretty much know St. Joseph wasn't an elderly man who was simply commissioned to care for Mary like a grandpa. 
So I'm with Brant Petrie, who is a research professor at the Augustine Institute, prolific author. He's written all kinds of things, and he has a series out on St. Joseph called The Hidden King. And we just recorded a full podcast on this. You can check that out at MatthewSLeonard.com, and it'll be up on YouTube as well. Uh, so check it out for the really great stuff. One of the things that we did not talk about, which is one of the most uh, interesting questions, I think, to a lot of people is how old was St. Joseph? Like, was he this old man? Uh, was he like with a cane and all this artwork that we see and, you know, super old and he's got this young wife? Who was he, Brent? How should we imagine St. Joseph? Yeah, this is a great question. I don't know about you, but growing up Catholic, I just remember holy cards or art depicting St. Joseph. And one of the reasons, frankly, as a young man, I never kind of felt all that drawn to him is because he's always depicted as being really, really old, as an yeah. elderly man, as an old man. And so um, over the years, as I've taught, one of the most frequently asked questions I get is, well, how, how old exactly was St. Joseph? Because you you hear some Catholics say, oh, well, he was an older man. Some Christians, too, Eastern Christians, they have a tradition of him being older. And then some other Catholics say, no, 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 I imagine him as a young man. I don't like the idea of, a, of Joseph as an old man. So what's the, what's the story here? And at the end of the day, whether you like it or not, it's not really what's important. The question is, what does the New <laughs> Testament tell us, right? Does it give us any information? And most people would say, well, the New Testament, doesn't say anything about the age of St. Joseph. That's what I would have said even just a year ago before I started researching, right? Because unlike Jesus, which it tells us in Luke's gospel, he was 30 years old, it never gives us an exact age count for St. Joseph. But what I noticed in studying for this particular series on the Hidden King was that if you read the New Testament very closely, it does give us a clue to how old Joseph was. It does tell us how old he was, but you have to look at it with first century Jewish eyes. So real quick, if you just look... Uh, in Luke chapter 1, the answer is in Luke chapter 1 and Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 18 and verses 26 to 27. This is the two accounts of the Annunciation, one to Zechariah and one to uh, Mary. The Annunciation of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah is about the birth of John the Baptist. The Annunciation to Mary is about the birth of Jesus. And what's fascinating here is that Luke's gospel uses two different Greek words to describe Zechariah and Joseph. So when the angel appears to Zechariah, it calls him a presbutes. That means an old man, right? I think most of us are aware of that because of the context of, you know, how's this going to happen? I'm an old man. How am I going to have a child when I'm an old man, right? And then the angel goes on to, you know, punish Zechariah for doubting and whatnot. But when it comes to St. Joseph in verse 26 to 27, Luke doesn't use that word. Listen to what he says. Quote, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man, in Greek, Aner, whose name was Joseph. Now, uh, there's an ancient Jewish writer named Philo, who's from the first century AD. He's a contemporary of Jesus. And he actually tells us that in first century Judaism, those two terms, there were specific connotations for ages associated with the Greek words uh, for different age levels of a man. So, for example, he says that um, he says that when when a guy's in his like when he, when he's between eighteen and twenty seven, he's called a neoniskos, a young man. Okay, but when he's from age twenty eight to forty nine, he's called an aner, a man. And then from age forty nine all the way into fifty six, he's called a presbutes, an old man. Right. So 
I am a man, right? You're still a man, but you're going to be an old man sooner than I will, right? <laughs> um, according to Philo. So what, what he's saying here, this is really important. When Luke describes Joseph as an honor, he can't mean that he's an old man because he just used the word presbytes for Zechariah. If he had wanted to tell us Joseph was old, he would have had to use the word what? Presbytes, elder, old man. By telling us he's an honor, according to Jewish writings at the time of Jesus, we can know that Joseph would have been somewhere in his late 20s, his 30s, or his early 40s. In other words, Joseph is a man in his prime. So let me, let me say something about that then, because that has big implications then for what his marriage to Mary looks like, does it not? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, this, is, this is very, very important. One, uh, somebody might be thinking, well, hold on. Weren't there traditions in the early church that Joseph was an old man, right? In fact, I've heard that he was a widower and that he had children from a previous marriage. And that's true. Later in the church, when you get to the time of the apocryphal gospels in the second and the third and the fourth century, there were writings outside the New Testament, like the Proto-Evangelium of James, that claimed that Joseph was a widower, um, that he was in his 90s <laughs> when he married Mary, um, and that he had children from a previous marriage, the Simon and Joseph and Jude, the, the, the so-called brothers, brothers of Jesus. Yeah. That's exactly right. So uh, the reason those apocryphal traditions arose is because as Christianity became more Gentile and further away from Judaism, when Gentile readers would encounter the brothers of Jesus in the Gospels, they knew from ancient tradition that Mary wasn't just a virgin when she conceived, but that she was perpetually virgin. Yet they see these brothers of Jesus in the Gospels. So later Christians in the Apocrypha came up with the hypothesis and explanation to account for their existence. And they said, oh, the way we account for this is that Joseph must have been a widower and that the so-called brothers of Jesus were children of his from a previous marriage. So they, they make Joseph a lot older both to explain the existence of the brothers of Jesus, but also, and this is really important, to protect the perpetual virginity of Mary. Because some of the ancient Christian writers just couldn't wrap their brains around a man in his prime being married to a young woman and yet living with her in chastity and in virginity. But the, the reality is, Matt, that's what the New Testament describes. Joseph is a man in his prime, and as I show, um, I cover this, I don't have time to go into this detail, but in my book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, I have a whole chapter on the brothers of Jesus showing you that these men who are called his brothers are actually the children of a another woman named Mary, who Matthew calls the other Mary, and her husband, Clopas, who's mentioned in John 19, who is the brother of Joseph, right? So, in other words, the brothers of Jesus are his cousins. There's no need to posit Joseph being a widower in order to explain their existence, right? In fact, uh, the woman called the other Mary is mentioned at the tomb. The mother of James and Joseph, who are called the brothers of Jesus, she's alive at the crucifixion. So there's no way she can be Joseph's wife, because then he wouldn't be a widower. I mean, he'd be a polygamist. He'd have more than one wife. And nobody <laughs> thinks that. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be flippant, but it's true, right? right? right. So if, if the mother of the brothers of Jesus is alive at the crucifixion, then she can't be Joseph's wife, which means Joseph and Mary uh, and Mary are uh, have a virginal marriage, right? And Joseph does that as a man, not as an old man, 
but as a man in his prime. Somewhere in his either his late 20s, his 30s, or his early 40s, which for me changes the way I think about his whole relationship with her and his whole journey in the Gospels that we see. Yeah, and it obviously uh, puts more beauty behind his title as the most chaste spouse. Right? Yeah, and, that's and, a great point. Yeah, so the litany of St. Joseph, one of his titles is most chaste spouse. And that really is his vocation, to be the most chaste husband of the Virgin Mary. And also, frankly, too, to be a man who in his prime travels to Egypt, right, in the dead of night with the you know danger of robbers and all those things. He's got to be the protector of Mary and Joseph. And so it's fitting, Mary and Jesus, sorry, it's fitting that he would not just, that he would not be an elderly man, but that he would be a man in his prime. And look, at the end of the day, whether you like the idea of Joseph as old or not, or whether you like him younger, according to the New Testament, read in its first century Jewish setting, Joseph's not an old man. He's just a man. He's a man in his prime. That's great stuff. And if you want to hear more about this, uh, two things to do. One, you can go check out the Hidden King series at BrantPetrie.com. And uh, Brant and I just, as I said, recorded a full podcast on this topic where we get into a lot more of this kind of thing. And you can find that at MatthewSLeonard.com or wherever you listen to your podcast typically. Brant, thank you very much. Fascinating as always. Look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that little mini cast with Dr. Petrie. I have more great guests coming up and I'd like to thank my Patreon sponsors for allowing this show to happen. If you would like to support this channel, I greatly appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com slash Matthew Leonard. Also, if you like the show, leave a review over on iTunes. Uh, it greatly helps it in the rankings. It pushes it out in front of more people. And that's what it's all about, trying to spread the truth, beauty, and goodness of our Catholic faith around the world. Thank you. God bless you. And uh, as always, let's close with the words of St. Paul, Romans 12, 12. Say it with me, kids. Rejoice in hope. Endure in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Closing our sampler for today, we have an offering from 3-Minute Theology with Joan Watson. In this episode, Joan explores the concept of the various religious orders. All of us are called to live lives of holiness. But some people are called to live this vocation of holiness in a radical way, living lives of poverty, chastity, and obedience. These men and women have lives consecrated to God. If you haven't seen our episode on consecrated life, I invite you to check it out. Most of these men and women live a life in a religious order. Why are there so many different religious orders? You know them, Franciscans, Benedictines, Dominicans, Jesuits. Well, these religious orders each have a particular purpose or charism. They were often founded at a time when the church needed that gift. They needed that charism. St. Francis, for example, lived a life of radical holiness and poverty at a time when the church needed renewal. Most of the clergy were living worldly lives. And so while he didn't even mean to do it, Francis founded this religious order, the Franciscans, to remind the world what the gospel life actually looked like. 
St. Dominic founded the Dominicans to combat a specific heresy, Albigensianism, and the Dominicans continue to teach and preach throughout the world today. St. Jean Jugon founded the Little Sisters of the Poor when she started to serve the elderly in France. And again, the Little Sisters of the Poor served throughout the world, homes for the elderly, often those who couldn't afford to take care of themselves. There are, of course, similarities with all religious life. They generally take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Their life is a combination of prayer and work. Their daily schedule probably includes time of communal prayer and private prayer, communal meals, work, and meditation. But there are differences to how that prayer and work looks depending on the religious order. We have both active orders and contemplative orders. The contemplative orders, like the Carthusians or the Poor Clares, spend much more of their time in prayer. They generally live more radical lives of poverty. They might take vows of silence. They might give up meat for the rest of their lives. And they generally live in a cloister or an enclosure. While they do work, the Trappists, for example, are known for brewing beer, much of their time is spent in prayer. You know, the world would probably say, this is a waste of a life. Why are these talented men and women stuck in cloisters praying? But we know that prayer is the most important thing we can do. And I like to say that these orders are probably what keeps the world spinning. There are also active religious orders like the Dominicans, the Jesuits, the missionaries of charity. Prayer still forms the backbone of their day, but you'll also generally find these men and women outside the convents and monasteries, serving the poor, working in hospitals, or teaching in universities. We are all called to the life of holiness, to that vocation of holiness, but some of us are called to live that life in a radical way, in the consecrated life. Is God calling you to serve him in this way? Is he calling a son or a daughter or a loved one? It takes great courage to answer this call, but the church needs you. The church needs people who are willing to serve God with their entire lives. And so pray, pray for an increase in vocations, but remember, God's calling. We need to have the courage to answer the call. And that's a little theology in three minutes. Closing this week's sampler, let us all pray for an increase in religious vocations, to priesthood, to the vowed religious life of sisters and nuns, to the diaconate, and to lay ministry. The harvest is rich, but the workers are few. That's all the time we have for Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler for today. You can find this show in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org, along with links to more of the programs we've shared. Until next time, I'm Kent Blanford, and may God bless. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.